afternoon and welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording today on um, May the 27th, a Saturday. You're listening to us for the first time on Sunday, May 28th, and the rebroadcast will play on Monday, May 29th, 2023. Uh, my name is Jasmine, and I'm here with Reese. How you doing, Reese? Well, today. <laughs> yeah, we're going to go with that. I'm well on this Saturday. Happy to have some time off for the holiday and hoping to get into some shenanigans just a little bit this weekend. Okay. <laughs> yeah, a little shenanigans is, is appropriate, I think. Yeah, you got to let loose every once in a while, right? Right. How about you? I'm doing all right. You know, like I always say, I can't complain. Or wait, what do I normally say? I say I'm hanging in there. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, I'm hanging in there, so I'm still hanging. Um, plan to go out, enjoy some of the weather today. It's a beautiful day in Brooklyn, so. Yeah, you all got better weather than we do. I'm jealous. I mean, hey, we're, we're on the <laughs> we're on the best coast. Oh, I'm not gonna even fight you on that. Not today. Yeah, <laughs> you can't. You all you all the way in California. Yeah, it's a good coast, but yeah, we're gonna leave that one right there. <laughs> All right, so on this week's episode for Local News, we'll be talking about Mayor Eric Adams' attempts to limit NYC's right to shelter. For National News, we'll be talking about um, a young Black boy who was shot by the police after he called for help. For World News, we'll be discussing German police cracking down on climate activists. And for the Good News, we'll be discussing a community garden in Compton. Uh, so I'm going to be starting out with a local news story. Uh, this comes from The Gothamist. This article was written by David Brand. The title is Mayor Adams Wants to Limit NYC's Right to Shelter. What does that mean? Uh, it's, it's a pretty lengthy um, amount of like back, background information on this. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but this is the majority of it. Uh, Mayor Eric Adams' decision to challenge New York City's unique right-to-shelter rule isn't the first time a sitting mayor has taken aim at the decades-old measure requiring the city to provide shelter to anyone in need. Republican mayors Michael Bloomberg and Rudy Giuliani before tried to end or erode measures that guarantee a bed in a homeless shelter. Both failed and Mayor Bill de Blasio, a Democrat, quietly tightened eligibility for families with children. Adams is now hoping a judge will determine that New York City can no longer sustain a right that exists nowhere else in the country, even as he touts the five boroughs' superiority. Here's what you need to know. Why is Adams doing this? The mayor's push comes as the city's shelter population has soared past previous highs in recent months with many New Yorkers unable to afford record high rents and tens of thousands of newly arrived migrants entering the five boroughs in need of a place to stay. Adams has repeatedly said the city shelter system, which was already strained from a deepening affordable housing shortage, can't handle more people. In essence, Adams wants permission to suspend the right to shelter rules if the city can't afford to house people or doesn't have the quote-unquote capacity to do so. An ambiguous determination with potentially lasting consequences. He's in for a fight. What's at stake? 
New York City's right to shelter rules have allowed the five boroughs to avoid the mass public homeless encampments evident in other cities, especially on the West Coast. Steve Banks, the former commissioner of the Department of Social Services under de Blasio, said eroding the right to shelter would lead to more people staying in public spaces. It is hard to see how asking a court to suspend the right to shelter that is secured by the New York State Constitution is a winning strategy because there will be far more people sleeping on the streets if the city's request is granted, and that is in no one's interest, said Banks, who previously served as head of legal aid and successfully sued to enact a right to shelter for children, a 25-year-long battle that started in 1983. While the shelter system has faced relentless scrutiny over unsafe conditions, minimal supports, and prolonged stays, the city's rule at the very least guarantees a place to stay, said Milton Perez, an organizer with the group Vocal NY who experienced homelessness and lived in shelters. It would be a terrible thing to see, whatever little protections we have weakened more so, Perez said. People are going to fight this tooth and nail. So what exactly is the right to shelter? Back in 1979, a young lawyer named Robert Hayes sued the city and state on behalf of homeless men in New York City with a man named Robert Callahan as lead plaintiff. Hayes argued that a clause in the state constitution stating that the aid, care, and support of the needy are public concerns and shall be provided by the state and by such of its subdivisions guarantees that all men without housing have the right to a bed in an indoor shelter. Later that year, a judge agreed, siding with Callahan and Hayes, co-founder of the Coalition for the Homeless. After two years of negotiations, then-Mayor Ed Koch agreed to the right to shelter premise and entered into a consent decree that allowed the Coalition for the Homeless to oversee the city's shelter system and implementation of the rule. Callahan, however, died before the city agreed to the consent decree. Over time, attorneys representing people experiencing homelessness brought new legal challenges resulting in the right to shelter for women and for families with children, along with new measures to improve conditions and prevent kids from sleeping in large group settings. Reached by phone Tuesday evening, Hayes lambasted Adams for trying to chip away at the measure. I think it's shameful. I think it's cowardly, Hayes said. There will be at least two generations of judges who have worked on these courts who would roll in their graves if the court ceded to the mayor's request, he added. What happens next? Adams' request to the court sets off a potentially lengthy legal process. He asked the judge for permission to file a motion to amend part of the Callahan ruling with a new paragraph limiting the obligations to provide shelter to both homeless adults and to adult families when the city's Department of Homeless Services lacks the resources and, and capacity to establish and maintain sufficient shelter sites, staffing, and security to provide safe and appropriate shelter. Adams and other city officials contend that they do not actually want to eliminate the right to shelter for adults. More than 80,000 people are staying in DHS shelters, according to the most recent daily census count, and thousands more are staying in facilities run by other agencies. 
but the wording of the city's proposal would not limit the suspension of the right to shelter to the current moment or crisis. Adams Chief Counsel Brendan McGuire said Wednesday that getting their way means permanently limiting the right to shelter for adults. The Coalition for the Homeless and the Legal Aid Society said they will fight any attempts to erode the right to shelter. The administration's request to suspend the long-established state constitutional right that protects our clients from the elements is not who we are as a city. New Yorkers do not want to see anyone, including asylum seekers, relegated to the streets, the two groups said in a statement Tuesday night. We will vigorously oppose any motion from this administration that seeks to undo these fundamental protections that have long defined our city. Um, So yeah, it was a long um, article and that wasn't even the whole thing, but I thought it was important to give some background to exactly what the right to shelter is in New York um, and what it could potentially mean for that to go away. So is this something that you had heard about already? No, I haven't, but I have noticed that this mayor is really hell spent on criminalizing underprivileged people. Um, it's very clear what his intentions are and who he's serving, which is obviously not the people of New York City. Um, but it almost seems like he comes with an agenda, you know, that was set before he was ever there, like the best of the foolish politicians we watch every day. Um, I'm curious to find out what other states have or what other cities have this right to shelter. I was trying to look it up before. Um, the there aren't any. Like it's unique. Oh, this is the only one. Okay, that's what I was thinking because I had never heard of it before. Um, and just for comparison, you know, if that was the case here in Los Angeles, where homelessness is the most uh, fragrant problem problem outside of you know um, substance abuse, I think that you would see something very different um, in these communities. And you know, historically. In LA, the homelessness is just it's another part of the culture. It's just another group of people, you know, that it should be considered as a part of this city's dynamic. But in New York, even in the midst of, you know, all the changes that happen from time to time and, you know, throughout the pandemic and everything, we were talked a lot on the show about how, how the increase of people, um, houseless people happened a lot during that time. And we're, you know, kind of like on the precipice of, the remnants of that time. And I see something like this kind of trying to weed out certain people from being in the city. That on top of the rent increases and all the different things that's been happening to really make the city something that it kind of has never really been, if you will, um, which is basically a city that's not for the people of New York. Um, and it's, it's scary because something like this, what about the people who are on the brink of homelessness that are not there yet? You know, which is a lot of people, and that could be anybody at any time. But it's definitely very clear um, his intention to rid the city of anything that looks like the city, so to speak. Yeah, I I think it's definitely it's frightening because, as the article pointed out, it's not like it would be something that's limited to a specific moment in time, like. Because, you know, a lot of this is being blamed on the fact that there's a lot of asylum seekers coming through uh, to New York City. Uh, and this is a city of what? Is it 8 million people or 9 million people? Probably closer to 9. 
it's 8.468 million as of 2021. So, you know, I feel like these numbers sound big, like when you're saying for like uh, tens of thousands, but then when you put it into context of, you know, this is such a large city and there are a lot of buildings and things that are just not being used at all, they're just sitting. Um, I think it is kind of making it seem like it would be impossible to absorb these groups of people, even if like they're not going to stay permanently. But I I doubt very seriously that it's literally impossible to do. I just think there isn't from this administration a willingness to do it. It's very disheartening, too, because, you know, I feel like we've all always looked to New York as to be, you know, a progressive nature when it comes to actually serving the people who make the city what it is. And it, it just seems like it's just been such a regression of that. Um, over the past couple of years. And it's just, you know, you know what these agendas are, you know what it's about. And I would hate to come to New York and it not be the city that I remember, you know, like it, it's changed so much, even within the 10, 15 years I was there to now. But this seems just like, you know, it is so intentional on turning the city population into something else. And it's just scary. You know, I feel really bad for the people that are within the system, but also the people who work in the system trying to help those in this position because they're up for a fight. And, you know, part of the article, you were saying that they will fight, they have to fight. And I am grateful for that because, you know, these are people who have dedicated a a portion of their lives, their careers to uh, serving this population and trying to help these people. And sometimes we forget, you know, about the organizations, the people that work within these centers, the people that advocate for uh, resources and programming to help people get out of this situation, to rectify this for people with children and uh, women who need help for whatever reason that they choose to go into a shelter as opposed to going home. Um, You know, sometimes those people go um, unspoken about or unheard of, but, you know, just special thanks to everybody who will be fighting this because we really need you. Those are the real heroes, honestly. I mean, none of us know where we would be tomorrow, where we're going to be tomorrow or like how circumstances can change on a dime. Like, I know personally, like if my rent were to go up astronomically, like some of these places are in the city, I wouldn't be able to quickly find another place like that I could afford that would be in my means. There was um, a very good, but it was a disheartening article. It was in New York Magazine in their curb section. It was called A Sale and a Suicide on East 12th Street. And it was about someone who was a lifelong New Yorker and just got to be older. He was only in his 60s. And it was one of those things where like all of a sudden the building got sold. The rents went up like up in like the thousands, like something that was just untenable. And he was talking to his neighbors about like how he thought that that would be what would happen when the building sold. And then it came to fruition and he jumped out a window to his death. And the whole article is about like the neighborhood and the building itself and also him as an individual. But like he's a, he represents a lot of people in the city that are, you know, just one decision away or someone else's decision away from not having a roof. And, you know, as bad as things might be in the current shelter system, it is at least something because I've been to L.A. and I've been to um, Washington State. People sprawled out as far as the eye can see just in the streets. That's that's no joke. Like, that's a very serious issue that 
as bad as the issues are here in the city, we don't have that same situation. But if this goes through, like, I do feel like we would rapidly see that. And then the next step would be to ramp up the violence and criminalization of the people that are then in that situation, like even more than what we already have. You're absolutely right. I mean, you can look and see that this is, you know, what's coming. And and there are smaller cities all over this country that have a similar problem, but, you know, there's no focus on it because it's a small town and, you know, the population is different or it's just not in the limelight. But for this to be something that has been in existence for this amount of time to now be coming uh, with opposition from the city's government, it's just, it just shows you, you know, some, there's nothing new under the sun in this country, but it, it just really gives me that feeling like we going back in time, you know, it's a lot of people pushing for that shit. And it's very obvious that it's happening right in front of us. You know how they say, like, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. And I know a lot of comparisons are made to Nazi Germany and people roll their eyes. But, you know, look at what's happening with like disabled people and immunocompromised people basically being shut out of public life with the pandemic and everything and like the increased hostility towards people who want public health measures. Things like that also happen in Nazi Germany. Also, like violence against the homeless and criminalizing homelessness and people feeling empowered and emboldened to be violent and vicious towards people that are visibly poor. That was also something that happened early on in Nazi Germany. Like those were some of the first groups that were demonized, ostracized, attacked People made excuses for it. And, you know, look at what happened with this Jordan Neely's murder. Look at what the mayor is going for now. You know, we're seeing a lot of these same things happening today. And I don't think enough people realize it. You know, people talking about Ron DeSantis and how his voice sounds and that he's short and looks funny. That's not a joke. People thought Hitler looked and sounded funny, too. You know, and then eventually he was able to win an election and we all know what happened after that. So, you know, these are not you might not be in a situation right now where like you yourself are homeless, but like all of these separate actions are part of like a larger, swift, hard rightward turn. And it's very frightening. I agree. You are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. For our first musical break, we lost several um, important Black musicians in the past few days. Um, One of them was William James Edwards Lee, or Bill Lee, uh, Spike Lee's father. He was a jazz musician. He composed original music for several of Spike Lee's movies. And he was also the music director for several of his films. Uh, And for our first track, we're going to play uh, Mo Better Blues by the Branford Marcellus Quartet and Terrence Blanchard.
Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule. And now we have Reese with our national news story. Um, so this article comes from uh, CNN.com. It was written by Nick Valencia and Devin Sayers. And the title of the article is Attorney for 11-Year-Old Mississippi Boy Shot by Police Says There's No Way He Could Have Been Mistaken as an Adult. An attorney for an 11-year-old boy in Mississippi who was shot by police after he called 911 for help said Thursday there is no way the boy could have been mistaken for an adult. The attorney, Carlos Moore, is taking is asking for a full and transparent investigation of the shooting. Adrian Murray is recovering after being released from the hospital, according to his family, who has called for the officer to be fired and charged with the shooting. The boy is traumatized and will require counseling, according to Moore. Adrian was shot in the chest by an Indianola Police Department officer early Saturday morning while the officer was responding to a domestic disturbance call at the child's home, according to his mother, Nikayla Murray, and the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation. Moore told CNN on Thursday, there's no way the boy could have been mistaken for, could have been mistaken by the officer for the adult who was the subject of the 911 call, a man over six feet tall. This 11-year-old child was about four feet 10, it looks like, and so he could not have been confused, Moore said. So we don't know what happened, but we do know the officer's actions were reckless, very reckless, and could have led to a loss of life. Moore said the boy did everything right the morning of the shooting and described him as a good student who obeyed his mother's request that he call the police for assistance. No child should ever be subjected to such violence at the hands of those who were sworn to protect and serve. Moore said in a statement earlier Thursday morning. We demand, we must demand justice for the young boy and his family. We cannot allow another senseless tragedy like this to occur. We must come together as a community to demand change and accountability for our law enforcement officials. The circumstances of the shooting are under investigation. Moore, the boy's mother and others had Moore, the boy's mother and other held a sit-in protest Thursday morning in Indianola City Hall a march and a rally to demand the firing of the officer and the release of body camera footage is planned for Saturday. The Indianola Police Department on Friday referred all questions regarding the incident to the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation, which has declined to comment beyond a short statement released this weekend. The boy was seriously injured and suffered a collapsed lung, fractured, fractured ribs, and a lacerated liver from the shooting. He was released from the University of Mississippi Medical Center in Jackson on Wednesday, hospital spokesperson Annie Oates said. He still has a lot of questions, Moore said of the boy on Thursday. He is emotionally distraught. He is glad to be alive. Murray said her son is blessed to be alive and is asking why the police shot him. Murray told ABC's Good Morning America on Thursday that arriving officers yelled, open the door, open the door. And when she opened it, an officer outside was holding up a gun, telling her to come outside. Murray told the show she stepped outside and walked toward the end of the driveway where her mother was. Sorry, I'm going to start that over. Murray told the show she stepped outside and walked toward the end of the driveway where her mother was and then heard 
a shot and I saw my son run out towards where we were. He then fell, bleeding from the gunshot wound, she said. The officer who fired the shot told her that he had shot Adrian after he came around the corner, she told the show. Moore told CNN he met Adrian in person for the first time on Thursday and described him as being in good spirits, but still shocked by what happened. He added, he is afraid of police and he is still in pain. The mother asked the son to call the police. Murray told CNN that the irate father of another of her children arrived at her home at 4 a.m. on Saturday. Concerned about her safety, Murray asked Adrian to call the police. Murray said the officer who arrived at the home had his gun drawn at the front door and asked those inside to come outside. Murray and her son were shot coming. Murray said her son was shot coming around the corner of the hallway into the living room. Once he came from around the corner, he got shot. I cannot grasp why the same cop that told him to come out the house did and he got shot. He kept asking, why did he shoot me? What did I do wrong? She said the shooting happened what, what then felt like one or two minutes after the officer asked those in the house to come outside. The boy was given a chest tube and placed on a ventilator at the University of Mississippi's Medical Center in Jackson. He had a collapsed lung, fractured ribs and a lacerated liver because, the sh because of the shooting. He was released on Wednesday. Two other children, including Murray's daughter and a two-year-old nephew, were also in the home at the time of the shooting, she said. So there's more to the story um, about the body camera uh, footage not being policed, um, not being released, and just more information about the police officer still being employed at the department. Um, but this is just such a tragic story. And, you know, I can't even imagine. I'm not a parent right now, but I am a concerned auntie, if you will, to a lot of young boys and girls. My family's quite big and I have a lot of them that are teenagers and younger. And just the thought of them, one, already fearing police, but then to say in the middle of trauma, why did he shoot me? I'm overwhelmed just with the thought that he, he didn't cry out, mama. He didn't do any of that. He said, why did he shoot me? That's just, it's awful. Yeah, when I, I saw this headline and I did read more into the story, but when I just saw the initial headline that the child had been shot, I immediately thought that he had died, you know, and it was very sad. But even even though he survived it still, it's like the combination of this being like a domestic violence situation, like where he's afraid already and 11 is very young. Like that's still yeah. like, a, like a, a baby and being put in this position where you're seeing your mother be threatened by this big grown man. You're trying to help. She's telling you to do what, you know, she's thinking is going to help. And then to have this then happen to you, it's just, it made me want to cry, you know, cause I don't, I don't even know like what would happen in the future like mentally having gone through this, you know, it made me also think of Ralph Yarl, the young black boy that was shot just because he like rang the doorbell, like something yeah. that needed help or something. No, he was going, he went to the wrong house to pick up his younger siblings or something yeah. like that. And it was just a pure accident that he rang the wrong door and to be shot at. And then, you know, it feels like that just happened. And then this is happening. I mean, these trigger happy cops, you know, is, you know, the real problem here. And as the attorney is saying, like, this is a four foot 11 kid. 
I mean, what in, I, I don't understand the logic behind you, you, you couldn't have felt threatened, which is what they say most of the time when they kill us by gunfire in situations like this. You couldn't have felt threatened by a child. I, I, the child was not armed. The child wasn't even in your sight. Based on the article, he came around the corner and you just hit the trigger. Um, no one was protected here. And it's just overwhelming to think that, you know, when we raise our children, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. The conversations that we have to have about authority vary throughout life, right? I mean, first we have to establish the authority, I'm assuming. Um, then we have to talk to them about what it's like in school and obey your teacher and rules and regulations and why they're important. And this is a process of learning um, things like this. But when it comes down to something where your life is in danger or your mother's life is in danger, and you just did all you can do to help her. Um, I, he'll probably never be the same again, first of all, physically, of, of course, but mentally and emotionally, because at this point, as a child, he feels attacked for simply trying to help. And it's, it's just so layered, this story, um, that he can live to tell about it. And, pr and let's pray he lives, right? Because his injuries were substantial, and it's not like this was just something quick. He was grazed in the leg. This little boy has a liver problem, a fractured lung. Like this is no small, small deal here. And his body is still developing and probably will not develop at the capacity that he could. So I think this cop needs to be under the jail, first of all. The fact that he's even still on the force is is just fucking damn crazy. And, you know, it's gonna, there, there will be a day where people will just be over, just done, just done doing the right thing. You know, we've seen it in history, but there will be a day because the right thing is subjective. And when the right thing is subjective, there is so much air for confusion, disillusion, and quite honestly, rebellion. Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that this cop still has a job is terrible. And the other thing this made me think of is how we keep us safe, police don't keep us safe. You know, this is something where I understand why the mother said to call the police. And I think that that's in most people's minds, that's the first thought when there is some kind of a threat. But we see over and over and over again how the end result is not your safety. You just end up in more danger. Um, and the child could have, you know, lost his life. And these police officers, and it's broader than just the cops. Like there's a lot of people, white people, and also non-black people. Like they do not see black people as fully human. They do not see black children as children. And that is reflected in who they think it's okay to meet out this type of violence to. You know, there's no explanation in this world for why this baby should have been shot other than this person showed up, this police officer showed up to the house and it's like in their mind, they're like black animal or whatever. And then, you know, whatever aggression, violence, gunshots, whatever they think is justified. And then, you know, they shoot first, ask questions later if they even ask any damn questions. So... You know, I really do feel like we have to just collectively come up with alternative ways 
to deal with like community safety or how to cope with these types, like this kind of violence, because I mean, I know for myself, like a lot of these um, domestic violence situations are not really helped by the police. A lot of times they can make it worse if they're not going home, beating up on somebody themselves, frankly. So, you know, we have to do better, like as a community, like standing up for one another and like holding people accountable when we know that they're an abuser, they have a temper or whatever, because leaving it in the hands of do nothing or call 911, like we see what calling 911 can get you. You know, now it's like everything is just twice or three times as bad as what it was. It's it's terrible. Yeah. Um, well, I hate doing these type of stories, but I'm going to say his name, Adrian Murray. Um, you know, prayers out for this little boy that he will recover from this mental trauma that has happened so young in his life for his family members who will be a part of his healing and, you know, growing, hopefully that he actually survives his injuries um, for his mother who was probably overwhelmed that she was even in that situation and her baby has gone through this Um, and the community at large that's surrounding his family. um, You know, I I know it's definitely, it's difficult to talk about. So I can't even imagine being a neighbor or one of his schoolmates. It's just, you know, when tragedy like this happens, it just affects so many people. And, um, you know, part of the reason I even stay on this show is to talk about these stories because these people need to be acknowledged and these problems, like Jasmine said, we got to learn to work with each other to help each other, even in the hardest situations like this. Um, you know, maybe just think a little bit more about what building your community even looks like. Do you know your neighbor's name? It could be as simple as that, you know. Um, and I know it's more complex, but I just want to send some love to this little boy and everybody surrounding him. And I hope that they get the help that they need. Yes, Absolutely. Um, prayers up for him and his family and happy that he survived and hopefully he can go on to thrive. Um, You are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our next musical break, we have a song by the late, great Tina Turner. This is What's Love Got to Do With It from her 1984 album, Private Dancer. We'll be right back. We love you, Auntie Tina. of your hand makes my folks react that it's only the thrill of boy-meeting girl while possess a track it's physical only logical you must try to ignore that it means more than I've got cause to be 
There's a name for it There's a phrase that fits But whatever the reason You do it for me Oh, what's love got to do Got to do it follow our social media accounts we have an instagram account and we also have a facebook account our facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free bk no spaces no punctuation our instagram account is at objection to the rule again no spaces no punctuation marks Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for world news, we'll be discussing something unfolding in Germany. Uh, So this article was written in The Guardian by Kate Connolly, uh, stationed in Berlin. The title is German Police Stage Nationwide Raids Against Climate Activists. Raids targeting members of Letzte Generation or Last Generation are carried out at 15 properties in seven German states. Nationwide raids against members of the German climate protest group Last Generation have been carried out at the behest of authorities in Munich, investigating charges that the group is a criminal organization. Launched at 7 a.m. local time on Wednesday, 170 police officers took part in the raids which targeted 15 properties in seven German states, including Bavaria and Berlin. According to the Munich General Public Prosecutor's Office, the searches took place at the request of the Bavarian State Criminal Police Office, LKA, which is in the preliminary stages of an investigation based on, quote-unquote, numerous criminal complaints received from the population against seven people, members of last generation aged between 22 and 38 who are suspected of quote-unquote forming or supporting a criminal organization according to prosecutors on a police directive the home page of the group was shut down and possessions belonging to members were seized there were no arrests the seven individuals are accused of setting up a donation campaign with funds of 1.4 million euros to finance the group's future legal battles. 
in order to allow the campaigners to continue their protests, including gluing themselves to roadways and bridges, more recently to vehicles and holding up traffic, as well as throwing substances at paintings and art galleries and other activities. There have been mixed reactions to their protests by the public. The LKA said two of the defendants were also suspected of having tried to sabotage the Trieste Ingolstadt oil pipeline in April 2022. The group, akin to the UK's Extinction Rebellion group, wants to draw attention to what it perceives as the government's lack of urgent action over the climate emergency. Among their demands are a 100 km per hour speed limit on German autobahns, as well as a permanent offer of a 9 euro a month ticket to use public transport. Last generation first came to prominence before the last federal election in 2021, when participants in the group went on a hunger strike, camping outside the Bundestag, demanding to talk to prospective government members about their demands. In its first reaction to the raids on Twitter, Last Generation wrote, when will they raid the lobby structures and seize the government's fossil fuel money, followed by the hashtags nationwide raid and Volix Beklopt, or completely idiotic, a reference to recent condemnation of the group by German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. So, you know, that was just a brief um, summary of what's unfolding right now, but um, that was a very good question. Like, are they raiding the offices of the people that are actively destroying the earth? Like, of course not, you know, but you try to bring attention to it and to the fact that we are living through a worldwide, like, climate catastrophe and you get labeled as the terrorists. Like, it's very, very spooky times. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it seems like this is at one point in time, actions like this would be considered to be extreme, but today it's not today. It is what, you know, I can't even say it's necessary because I'm not sure how effective, um, these movements are. I do appreciate people's dedication to it because they are doing it for all of us, not, you know, for themselves. Um, can you, bring back up again what it was that they said they wanted about the Metro pass. Cause I thought that was a pretty cool thing to be asking for, to help fight um, some of the issues in climate change. What, what was that piece they wanted to bargain for? So they were asking for a permanent offer of a nine euro a month ticket to use public transport. So I'm assuming that that means like they want there to be like to make public transportation more attractive and affordable um, because that's a pretty low amount of money for an entire month. Right. Um, But that was together with their demands of limiting how fast cars can go on German autobahns. Okay, so obviously I don't think they could limit the speed on a German autobahn. That's just, you know, it's, it's one of the global insights of Germany that people actually um, are so excited about for whatever reason. But in the same context, that other piece about, you know, making public transportation more affordable and attractive to people, I think is very necessary. Um, You know, cities that have more public transportation options have a lot more things available to people in different uh, financial brackets and demographics than others do. And it is a way to take down on certain things as long as, you know, their services are efficient and safe. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, you got to give it up for the climate activists. It's not always been my best uh, place to make a ruckus about. It was a difficult class to study and I took it in undergrad. It was really hard because the history of it was just so scattered and, you know, misinterpreted. But, you know, this is happening today. And I appreciate the fact that people are so serious about this topic because it's pretty, pretty prevalent now. Um, and there's nothing we can do to turn back what we've done. So bringing uh, a heightened level of um, observation and, and discussion about these things from any pocket of the globe are necessary. Yeah, and I, I, I just want to call attention to the fact that, you know, these they in the article it says the group wants to draw attention to what it perceives as the government's lack of urgent action over the climate emergency and i'm not trying to come down on the author of the article but i think it's important to understand that it's not a matter of perception it is a fact you know like the un secretary general said just last year that the world is headed for climate catastrophe without urgent action there are parts of the world today that are currently unlivable during certain parts of the year because it gets so unbelievably hot. And that is all signs are pointing to that happening more and more. So it's not a matter of feeling. It's not a matter of opinion where like all opinions are equally valid. Like this is a fact that this is happening and it's hitting some parts of the world harder than others right now, but it's coming to all of us. So, you know, I commend the people that are willing to take these drastic met because, you know, we're in a drastic situation. And if you look back in history, like in the U.S., like a lot of the protests and things that civil rights activists did back in the day, they were not popular. People did not like that they were doing it. They thought they were doing too much. But, you know, we look at that and we thank God that they were willing to do it and put themselves on the line like that to at least get to where somewhat of what we have today. You know, so I'm, I do feel like the fact that people are upset about what they're doing and it's calling attention to this issue, I do think that it is uh, achieving at least part of its purpose. You know, and people need to wake up that if this these are the actions that the police are willing to take against people doing this type of work, look out because, you know, the climate situation is not going to get better by sitting down, being polite and like, you know, having conversations like that's obviously not getting us to where we need to be. So good luck to them. Absolutely. And on that note... Uh, I guess I will bring on the good news for this week. So this article comes, well, the story comes from um, the website, theweek.com. And I believe it might have also been on Good Morning America this week. Uh, the, the title is, it's just a snippet, but the title was Indoor Vertical Farm Brings Fresh Produce and Jobs to Compton. Just look up and up and up. A new indoor vertical farm is open in Compton, California that is designed to grow up to 4.5 million pounds of leafy grains every year. The Plenty Compton Farm takes up a city block and is described as the world's most technologically advanced indoor vertical farm. The produce is grown in a controlled environment without sunlight on vertical towers that are almost two stories high. Indoor farming uses less water and land and is being touted as one 
way of getting fresh, affordable produce into more areas while also creating jobs. Plenty was very committed to making sure that the people they hired actually came from the city, came from the community, and this is what they've done. Compton Mayor Emma Sharif said, adding that 30% of the farm's employees live in Compton. So that's just a quick snippet um, of this good news story. And I think that, you know, you don't really hear about positive things happening in Compton. Um, Unfortunately, it lives on the history of what it is. And not to say that some of those problems that we know exist there, gun violence, you know, poverty, things like that don't still exist. But this is just one way um, that when people mobilize the community, they can um, not only produce things that people need, jobs, but also educate people on the possibility um, of human collaboration and innovation. So shout out to um, the Plenty Compton Farm for creating this vertical farm that 4.5 million pounds of leafy vegetables a year. I mean, that's that's pretty significant, I think. And um, I'm not exactly sure who will benefit from the sale or um, use of all of these grains, but at least it is happening in a hood near me. <laughs> Yeah, and what did it say about like the way it uses water? Indoor farming uses less water and land and is touted as one way of getting fresh, affordable produce into more areas while creating jobs. So this is, you know, this can be done, you know, in a city like New York with all of these uh, skyscrapers. Um, This is something that can be done. It seems if they can do it in Compton, listen, they can do it anywhere. It's about, you know, bringing the resources and the people to do it. Yeah. And like just coming off of the story about um, climate activists, it's like, you know, this money that's going to us shutting people down who are bringing attention to all of these issues, like that money and energy needs to go towards being innovative about ways we have to change the things that we do to face the reality that like, we don't have an infinite supply of good, clean water like we have to, we can't keep doing what we've been doing these past few decades because it's literally killing the planet and it's killing us and it's killing wildlife, all of that. So, you know, being creative and thinking of like innovative ways to be sustainable, like that should be supported and applauded and all the resources should be going to that type of stuff. You know, not shouting down the people that are calling attention to the fact that there's a problem. Exactly. And maybe I'm an idealist, but if there was um, some think tank or community agency that was empowered by local city governments to find ways for this type of innovation to uh, extend across every city, uh, just think about what we could do. You know, this is the type of stuff that I'm sure is done in communities um, and other places in the world where they don't have access to water, access to, you know, good soil. I'm sure they have this type of thing there if they have the resources to do it, but this can be done anywhere. Um, and it seems like a wave of the future. It seems like something we all need to be taking a part in. Yeah, for sure. Like that was super interesting. Thank you for finding that. Sure. It's always good to bring good news after so much tragedy, you know? <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah. So we did a show. Um, thank you for listening. And uh, we did play a song by Tina Turner earlier today. Um, In case you are living under a rock and didn't know, uh, she passed away on May 24th uh, peacefully at her home in Switzerland. And, you know, I know her life story is something that I've always found inspirational on what she was able to do and accomplish. 
I don't know about you, Reese, if you feel similarly. So Tina was one of my heroes. Um, I remember when I was a little girl and watching her perform, you know, even before the Angela Bash's special, special uh, the movie, but just like literally watching her perform as we watch performers today. I looked up to her. She was one of the people that inspired me to be in the arts and to want to sing and dance. If I could dance more, I might have done more. But I must say, yeah. like, just seriously, like, I used to watch her in awe, you know, when I was a little girl. And this one hit home for me. It hit me almost as hard as Whitney did. Um, I think Whitney hit a little harder because she was younger. But also um, Tina's story of survival after what she'd been through really hit home for me for many reasons. So um, like I was saying earlier, we love you, Auntie Tina. Thank you for being an inspiration yeah. to us all. Yeah, rest in peace to her. And I wanted, there was a tweet I saw that um, I thought was worded so beautifully. It was by user Robin Wannabe Fly. And she said, the biggest takeaway for me from Tina Turner, but her doc especially, meaning her documentary, is that life isn't over until it's over. Even when other people try to end it for you even as you age. If you're still here with breath in your lungs, you have a chance to make the life you want. And, you know, I thought that was so powerful and really encapsulates, you know, what Tina Turner means to me, you know, like go out there and live, you know, you don't have to be like what you've been through in the past. Like tomorrow is a new day. Absolutely. Yeah. And so on that note, um, I'm not even going to say the man's name, <laughs> but this yeah. is a, a live version of a song that she remade um, back in the day uh, when she was not a solo act quite yet. Uh, this is Tina's version of Son of a Preacher Man. Have a good day, everybody. Enjoy your week. Bye. That's when Billy would take me walking Through the back of yard we'd go walking When he looked into my eyes Lord knows to my surprise The only one who could ever reach me Was son of a preacher man The only one who could ever teach me Was son of a preacher man Yes he was, said he was When you start talking sweet talk to me You come and tell me everything is alright Kiss and tell me everything is alright Can I get away again tonight? The only one who could ever reach me You are the son of a preacher man The only one who could ever teach me You are the son of a preacher man Said he was Yes he was He was Yes he was
If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter.